And to be perfectly frank, there have been times when members or leaders in the church have simply made mistakes. There may have been things said or done that were not in harmony with our values, principles, or doctrine. Brothers and sisters, stay in the boat. Use your life jackets. Hold on with both hands. Avoid distractions. Give Brother Joseph a break. Some have asserted that more members are leaving the church today and that there is more doubt and unbelief than in the past. This is simply not true. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has never been stronger. How can homosexual members of the church... First, I want to change the question. There are no homosexual members of the church. Questions are honored, but opposition is not. I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those are going to be the ones we avoid. Doubt your doubts. Welcome to another episode of the Cognitive Dissidents Podcast. This is episode number two. And today we're going to talk about confirmation bias. So what is confirmation bias? And the idea, again, behind this podcast is we're going to go into the psychological mechanisms that compel or encourage us deeply to hold certain beliefs or to defend certain beliefs and why we as human beings believe the way we do. And today we're talking about confirmation bias. Most of us know generally what this means. It's the idea that all of us are biased to an extent that we will go out into the world and search for information that reinforces our current beliefs rather than seeking out equal information or on the extreme end of that side, seeking out information against our beliefs. And so most people tend to look for reinforcing evidence of the beliefs they currently hold. The uh, official definition of confirmation bias, and also it is called at times confirmatory bias, or my side bias, or even verification bias. It's a tendency of people to favor information that confirms their beliefs. People display this bias when they gather or remember information selectively, or when they interpret it in a biased way. Now, I should at least tell a personal story here. So, one of the things that um, today I am much less politically inclined. I I look out at politics and I just see it's a dog-eat-dog game. And I tend to kind of just completely stay out of it. Like, I don't need that extra tension in my life. But if I go back a decade, I was an avid, avid Republican, conservative Republican, I would listen to Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck and talk radio essentially every day in my car as I would drive around for my job. And I loved these two voices of Beck and and Limbaugh. And I would look at those two voices and listen to them, and I just knew they were right. And I knew they had their arguments down, and this is the way the world should be seen by everybody. And I remember 
back when uh, Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton was president, I would gather every Friday at my grandfather's house and me and my dad and all of his brothers and sisters, he was one of eight children, and we had all of our cousins and we all lived in the same town and we would gather at my grandfather's house, sit in his backyard on Fridays, and we would talk sports or talk politics. And I remember when Bill Clinton was president and we would have conversations regarding the the uh, debt, the the uh, national debt and that number and how me and my brother and others in that group who were also conservative Republicans and diehard Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck listeners, how much we would look at that national debt and say, look, this thing is just growing. We have to do something about it. And then soon as uh, George uh, Bush, uh, the, the junior, uh, comes in to be president, right? George Bush 43, I think is how we would refer to him. And when he comes in and he's president, and now it's our guy who's in there. And I remember distinctly my... My, I just developed a new mechanism for explaining the national debt. And I said, I said, that's not really that big of a deal. It's just a, just an imaginary number. That number can keep growing. It's just not that big of a deal. And then he's out and, uh, we get Barack Obama in his first term. And immediately I'm going back to the fact that this debt, this is just a horrible number. This number just is, we can't let this thing grow. And I remember my uncle looking at me and saying, I cannot believe you. Like every time a new president comes in, when it's your guy, you explain it this way. And when it's, when it's not your guy, then you're harping on it. And it just struck me then how our brains will defend our beliefs at all cost. Confirmation bias. Uh, some other examples. If we consider the debate over gun control, take for instance, Sally. Sally, she's in support of gun control. She seeks out news stories and opinion pieces that reaffirm the need for limitations on gun ownership. When she hears stories about shootings in the media, she interprets them in a way that supports her existing beliefs. Henry, on the other hand, is adamantly opposed to gun control. He seeks out news stories that are aligned with his position, and when he comes across news stories about shootings... He interprets them in a certain way that supports his current point of view. Another example would be people who believe in extrasensory perception, ESP. These folks will keep close track of instances when they were thinking about mom. And then the phone rang, and guess what? It was mom. Yet they ignore the far more numerous times when either A, they were thinking about mom and she didn't call, or B, they weren't thinking about mom and ring, 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 mom's on the other end of that phone. And so those are some examples of confirmation bias. But I thought we'd also uh, play a short soundbite of another gentleman explaining in really simple terms using uh, a little numbers game of what confirmation is confirmation bias. And so let's now go to that audio. 
I'm going to give you guys three numbers, a three-number sequence, and I have a rule in mind that these three numbers obey. And I want you to try to figure out what that rule is. But the way that you can get information is by proposing your own set of three numbers to which I will say yes, that follows my rule, or no, it doesn't follow my rule, and then you can propose what you think the rule is. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so here, here are the three numbers. Two, four, eight. Two, four, eight. You don't need to continue the sequence. You can propose a totally different sequence, whatever you want to propose, and I will simply say yes or no. That Two, follows four, my rule. Eight. Sixteen thirty-two. Sixteen. Mm-hmm. Thirty-two. And. Sixty-four. Yeah. Uh, those also follow my rule. Okay. What's the rule? What Mul- uh, multiplied by two. That is not my rule. What? That's not my rule. But you're allowed, you, if you want, propose three other numbers. 3, 6, 12. 3, 6, six 12. 3, 6, 12 uh-huh. follows my rule. 10, 20, 40. 10, 20, 40. That follows the rule. Yeah, I'm still multiplying by two. I know. Oh. <laughs> I, know what, I know what you're doing. And yes, it follows my rule, but no, it's not my rule. 5, 10. 10 and 20. Follows my rule. 100. 200. 400. Follows my rule. 500, 1,000, 2,000. Follows my rule. Want me to keep going? But do I just keep going? You're going to tell me your rule? (laughs) (laughs) Am I doing it the wrong way? Am I I approaching this the wrong way? You're totally fine, but you're approaching it the way most people approach it. Like, think strategically about this. You want information. Yeah. I have information. The point of the three numbers, right, is to allow you to figure out what the rule is. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I'm going to give you the numbers that I don't think fits the sequence and then see what you say. So I'll say two, four, seven. Fits my rule. So whatever I propose is right. So is your rule like you can propose any number? So the rule is anything we say is yes. No. Damn it. (laughs) But you are on the right track now. Hit me with three numbers. Three, six, nine. Follows my rule. Mm. Oh, that didn't follow my rule. This is good, right? <laughs> 5, 10, 15. That follows my rule. What? Oh. Really? Yeah. I don't believe this. <laughs> 1, 2, 3. 1, 2, 3. Follows the rule. What about 7, 8, 9? Follows <laughs> Yes, that follows the rule. 8, 16, 39. Fits the rule. Excellent. <laughs> but we're no closer to the rule. <laughs> I want you to get to the rule. How about 1, 7, 13? Follows the rule. What? 11, 12, 13. How does this Follows make sense? The rule. 10, I don't know how to do this. Does not follow the rule. 10, 9, 8 does not. Oh, so is it all in ascending order? Booyah. Okay. Up top. Yes. First is that one's what it to is? get it. You guys nailed it. That's the rule. That's the rule. Increase numbers in increasing order. Numbers in ascending order. Oh, so much. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 10, 15, 25. Doesn't matter. Any numbers in ascending order. I was inspired to make this video by the book The Black Swan by Nassim Taleb. Now, The Black Swan is a metaphor for the unknown and the unexpected. I mean, in the old world, the theory was that all swans were white. So each instance of a white swan would make you think, yeah, that theory's pretty good. But the point is, you can never prove a theory true. And in fact, when people found Australia, they realized that there were black swans. What was interesting for me was that everyone I spoke to came up with a rule very early on and then only proposed numbers that fit with that rule they were thinking. I was looking for you guys to propose a set of numbers that didn't follow your rule and didn't follow my rule. I was looking for you guys not to try to confirm what you believe. You're always asking something where you expect the answer to be yes, right? Like you're trying to get at it. Yeah. But instead you want to get 
the no. Pass. You want to get the no because that's much more informational for you than the yes. Like if everything's no, doing a yes. that is true. That is yeah. really true once you say that. That is what's so important about the scientific method. We set out to disprove our theories. And it's when we can't disprove them that we say, this must be getting at something really true about our reality. So I think we should do that in all aspects of our lives. If you think that something is true, you should try as hard as you can to disprove it. Only then can you really get at the truth and not fool yourself. At some point, we're going to spend more time talking about cognitive development and how that plays into the beliefs that we have. But we should at least recognize that from young children to, to, you know, infants to toddlers to, to young adults to teenagers, you know, as we, as we go through these development stages, we ought to recognize that the younger we are, the, the more obscured reality can be, right? We start off as a three-year-old and we're believing in Santa Claus in the Easter Bunny, right? But by the time we're 10 or 11, or heavens forbid, like in my life where I was 17, just kidding. When you realize like some of these things aren't the way we thought they were. And yet we don't realize that that doesn't just happen when we're children, that this happens as we are also adults. And that as an adult, in the earlier stages of adult development, our ability to recognize that our beliefs were defending them and there's not as much evidence for them as we thought there was, is very obscured in these earlier stages. For instance, even relating it kind of back to Mormonism, you look at Alma, and Alma 32 has this experiment, right? And it somewhat follows the scientific method. Alma suggests an experience, believe, or at least desire to believe, that something is true. If it turns out to be good, then you know it is true and worth believing. Otherwise, forget it. Now, this is an approach to knowledge that is exceedingly prone to confirmation bias, right? So I give somebody a blessing because they have an earache. And the next day, their earache is gone, right? And I have a desire to believe in the ability of that blessing. When that person receives the blessing and they're healed, like that's evidence that this works. This, this priesthood thing is valid and working. Now it doesn't matter if I go through my life and out of the next hundred blessings I give, only one person or two people have this positive outcome. And it doesn't matter whether that positive outcome would have happened with or without the blessing. Rather, we're looking for confirmation of our bias. And throughout our religions, not just Mormonism, but throughout all of our religions, whatever whatever faith we belong to, and even if we're atheist, even if we're agnostic, like we have biases. And we're all the time trying to confirm our bias or looking for confirmatory evidence. And in the earlier stages, it's much more difficult to step outside yourself and to look at the situation and say, am I overreaching here? And as we develop, we begin to get better at that. Not that it ever goes away. Not that we're ever to a point where it doesn't affect us. It always will. 
But as we grow and develop in our cognitive ability, as we go through later stages of development, we get better at seeing that we're doing it and being able to step away from that and to reduce the amount of confirmation bias that is active in our lives. So because I'm a Mormon, I want to talk about this in terms of Mormonism, but again, any other faith could pick out like how they do it. One of the things that Mormonism used to do uh, like crazy, and to some extent it's still there, is to talk about the idea that Mormonism is the fastest growing religion in the world. And this is proof, because we use it as proof. We say it as proof. When we get up and say, this church has grown to 16 million members, right? The idea that it's the fastest growing religion, quote unquote, is proof that the church is true. The fact that we tout that there's 16 million members now is, is evidence in our heart that this work is going forward like a stone cut without hands rolling down the mountain, right? And yet, now that the church's growth has become stagnant or is perhaps even beginning to go backwards once we take into account uh, excommunications and resignations and people who simply step back from activity, like now we have to change our reasoning. So now our confirmation bias now looks for a new reason to confirm that we are the true church. So rather than saying we are the fastest growing church out there. Now we say that we are going to be a strange and peculiar people. We are like the leaven among the, among the wheat. We are the, the leaven in the bread. We are the salt. And you just need a little bit of salt. And we come up with all these explanations that say like, we don't need to be that big. We should have never expected to be that big. It's actually the idea that we are just a small segment of a very large world that points to us being true. And yet we stand up and we say, we're 16 million members and growing because we often want to emphasize that we are growing because, because what, who wants to be in decline? And so we say that we're 16 million and growing, 16 million being the number of people baptized on the records, rather than saying something like we're 5.6 million and dropping, which is the number of active members in the world. And so it becomes a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose game. And that is how confirmation bias works. That no matter what evidence lays out there in the periphery, that we are looking for any angle that confirms the bias we already have. We want to be bolstered in the beliefs that we hold. And so we'll shout out from the rooftops the evidence we have. There's this NHM in the Southern Arabian Peninsula. And there's chiasmus. I mean, look at chapter 36 of Alma. And we give an extreme amount of weight to these evidences. Yet the multitude of evidences that point to our narrative being deeply problematic, those we just brush off. We just set those ones aside or we give them a whole lot less weight. And so an average person who has no bias walks into the situation and sees a thousand pieces of evidence on one side and sees four pieces of evidence on the other. And they look at them and they say, okay, what are, what are the evidences on both sides? What is the, 
What's the seriousness of each piece? How should I weigh these? Which ones should get uh, more serious consideration than others? And someone without a predisposed bias, and again, we all have biases. So to say there's someone without a predisposed bias misses the mark a little bit. But for, for the sake of our conversation, take someone with a minimal amount of bias. And they look at these issues and they say, man, there's a lot of stuff over here on this side. And there's only a few things over here on this side. And the things where there's a lot of stuff, some of these just absolutely do not have any good answers. And on the side where there's only a few things, like there are explanations for those. Yeah, I mean, they are, they do stick out a little bit. Yeah, they're kind of neat. Maybe they're coincidence. Maybe they're not. But, but like, what kind of weight should we give them? And so what we have to learn to do as human beings is somewhat remove ourselves from our investedness in the outcome of this conversation. And we need to be able to step back and say, like, what is the real evidence on both sides? And rather than looking for the evidence to confirm the belief I want to conclude with, can I look at the evidence realistically and try to take as much of my bias out and realize that no matter how comfortable I am in my beliefs, that I want to be able to discover truth in reality, regardless of how uncomfortable that makes me. And that goes for people on both sides. Because there are plenty of ex-Mormons or critics of the church who also have deep biases and who also are looking deeply, rigidly, for confirmatory evidence of that bias. And so we need to step out of that and be as objective as we can. The way to fight off confirmation bias, another way is really simple. It's a state, but it's really hard to put into practice. You have to try to think up and test out alternative hypotheses. Now this sounds easy, but it's not in our nature. It's no fun thinking about why we might be misguided or have been misinformed. It takes a bit of effort. It's distasteful reading a book, book which challenges our political beliefs, or considering criticisms of our favorite film, or even accepting how different people choose to live their lives. Trying to be just a little bit more open is part of the challenge that the confirmation bias sets upon us. Can we entertain those doubts for just a little longer? Again, I know our faith teaches at times that doubt is bad. But think about doubt for a moment. The only people who tell you that doubt is bad are those within your own faith tradition. Like, you're doubting Mormonism, and as a Mormon leader, your doubt is bad. But does Mormonism teach that Doubts in the Catholic Church are bad. Does does Catholics teach that doubts in the Baptist Church are bad? Does Islam teach that doubts in Scientology is bad? And do Scientologists teach that doubts in the Jehovah Witness faith is bad? Like, I don't think anybody's doing that. It's only within your own faith tradition. And it, and it comes from this fear base of like, don't look at the information don't give it serious consideration. Don't read what the critics are saying. Don't listen to your friend who has stepped away from our faith, what he has to say. It's fear-based. 
What I'm saying is to step back, look at the questions you have. Look at the doubts that you have. Look for evidence um, from coming from both camps and camps in between. Weigh the evidence. No scientist, when he tries to get to the truth of the matter, avoids data coming from one side simply because it's not the side he wants to conclude with. We would not accept that science. So step back and be willing to look at the information on both sides. Can we entertain those doubts for just a little longer? Can we even let the facts sway us and perform that most fantastical of feats of changing our minds? I'm Bill Real. This is the Cognitive Dissidence Podcast. Have a great day. And to be perfectly frank, there have been times when members or leaders in the church have simply made mistakes. There may have been things said or done that were not in harmony with our values, principles, or doctrine. Brothers and sisters, stay in the boat. Use your life jackets. Hold on with both hands. Avoid distractions. Give Brother Joseph a break. Some have asserted that more members are leaving the church today and that there is more doubt and unbelief than in the past. This is simply not true. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has never been stronger. How can homosexual members of the church... First, I want to change the question. There are no homosexual members of the church. Questions are honored, but opposition is not. I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those are going to be the ones we avoid. Doubt your doubts. 